Um, my name is Eugene, I'm an alcoholic. Um, that's my qualification for being here. Um, I just say at, at, you know, at the start, I'm a little bit nervous, of course, because it's a little bit different, you know. Uh, you're used to things and when I hear it's been recorded or I'm a musician sort of by and I can play really well by myself but once I see a microphone in front of me something goes wrong because my ego takes over a little bit I want to be better than I am or I'm wondering what people will think if they hear this and all that sort of shit goes on in my head so having saying it out loud might take a little bit of the power of it away from me I only have one story really um, and I'll try and get through it as fast as I can um, it might be totally different than the one you heard in Malay because sometimes it comes out differently. Um, but it's basically, I see it really as in three sections. The section before I drank, the section where I drank, and know that I haven't drank for a while. And the three, the three t things are totally different. It's like three different people, really. Um, so I, I, I started, I was born in North County Dublin. For people who don't know where that is, it's in Ireland and on the East Coast in a small village. And uh, one of four children, my father wasn't very present because he was a train driver and sometimes he was away from home. And um, when he wasn't away from home, he was working nights. So I was brought up in a house where we were told to be quiet all the time. My, shh, your father's asleep. So I was very conscious of other people growing up and I was walking on eggshells a little bit. It was also an extended family. We had a grandmother living with us and an uncle from another, family living with us and we were all four of us in the one bed and it's hard to imagine nowadays looking back and for anybody who's in other parts of the world we took I, we got our first cooker when we when i was about 11 years old i remember the excitement the little tabletop cooker up till then we were cooking all our meals on an open fire and that was in the cap near the capital city at the time so that's the sort of the upbringing it um it was very restrictive, it was very religious, there was only one way of thinking. And um, I was sort of blessed, I, I think nowadays, with questioning things. At that time, it was very difficult to question anything because you'd be sort of castigated for it. But as a, even as a kid, I was sort of feeling like there's another reality somewhere out there other than the one I'm in. So I never really fitted into the, the normal run of the mill. Even though I was trying to please everybody, I still felt like I was really outside. Um, so I spent a lot of time alone. I didn't do any team sports. Um, I was I was at some level inside myself as a child. I was terrified. I, I didn't have the vocabulary to know that. But looking back on it, my first day in school when I was four, the, it was um, it was a an old fashioned school, and there was a big staircase in the school which was wide enough to take about eight children wide, and the the, the youngest ones were put on the top of the staircase and the older ones as he went down that was the schoolroom, and i remember sitting up there with my short pants on me and i remember knowing i was going to piss myself but i couldn't stop it i didn't know how nobody told me how to ask to go to a toilet and i was there i was trapped there for the day in my own little head and i knew i was going to piss myself and i couldn't stop it and i could see it running down my legs and then i was running down that step getting to the step below and i don't know what happened because I suppose with any trauma, I was a traumatized child, really looking back on it. But again, I didn't have that language, but I don't remember anything what happened after that. But I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't very comfortable at school and I was nervous. And um, when seven, the seven year old came and they had this uh, religious thing called Holy Communion, 
and everybody was very excited about getting dressed up and going down door to door and getting collecting money and and I didn't want anything to do with that. I remember feeling like there was a picture taken of me and I keep meaning to get the picture from my sister and bring it home so I could look at that poor child. I was going to put up on the wall and look at him every day and he's still inside me. I didn't want to be there and I, did, I felt like I was being shot as, they, as I stood for that picture in my little suit. But I didn't, I didn't know how to say no. I was, I was trapped. And at 12, the same thing happened, another religious thing. And there was a bishop coming to ask us these stupid questions. Who made the world and all that sort of stuff. And what is heaven like, you know? I still remember the question I was asked, but I got the shits. And in front of everybody, I had to get up in the church and go down and everybody looking at me. Really, really sort of a choreographed, ritualistic thing. And I was the only one that had to get up and run out and run down the railway tracks with my diarrhea. And it wasn't that I yet. It was just total nerves. And I hear people in AA meetings talking about getting panic attacks. And again, I didn't have vocabulary for it. I just knew that I had to go to the toilet. So I survived those things and it was a survival. And then uh, they, they, all, the, all the teaching was about, you know, religion and reading, writing and religion, really, the three hours. And then nothing else in school. There was, no, there was no way of feeding our wonders as children. I used to love going in the woods and my uncle was a photographer and I used to collect, I used to collect leaves from trees and I used this photographic paper and I'd put the leaves on the photographic paper and it would print. I was so excited by that. But school wasn't, had nothing to do with that. And I been feeling being so sad. I, I used to feel, get the feeling of loss then because we didn't have the chemicals to fix the paper. So I knew this wasn't going to last. That was sort of symptomatic of my life afterwards. Anything that I loved would sort of fade away eventually. And I wanted to hold on to it, you know? So the photographic paper was like that. There was no you know, hypo to fix the image. You had to live with that. But the school wasn't like that. The school was very repressive. And uh, I did very well in school. I was clever. I, I could do things. I was quiz at maths. I was first, first, first place in the class in primary school all the time. I had good at languages and all that sort of stuff. But I hated the, the, the restrictive uh, feeling in the school. I loved to be out. Anyway, cut that long story short. The one good thing about school was the schoolmaster was from County Mayo and he played a tin whistle. And he used to look forward to that. It was the my best time in school when he took the whistle out of the the little the little box on a Friday afternoon at about a quarter past three. We'd get out at half three and start playing for 15 minutes. And my life brightened, brightened up. I heard him playing the whistle. And he gave me notes and I used to go away and play them. And I became pretty good, fairly fast on the whistle. And that sort of changed my life, really. There's little, little things in my, little things like that that happened in my life that actually changed me and made a, made my life very full. And that was one of them. Um, then come to puberty then, you know, all that stuff with the religion and the sex was starting to, I, I, my first relationship was with a, was, was with a, a bus pole. I used to climb up bus poles and on the way down, I got a bit of a tickle one day. So that was my first my first love, the bus pole. I still pass that pole every so often. And I remember the moment. It was like the moment of the first drink, the first tickle. I, I, up till then, I thought there was only one, there was only one use for that thing, you know, that I discovered a second use that day. And then I had all the feelings of guilt, you know, and, uh, and confession. And I thought I was the only one in Ireland. There was 4 million people in Ireland. I thought I was the only one in Ireland that was getting a tickle. I didn't know the priests were getting tickles as well and, and everybody else, everybody was at it, you know, but I thought I was the only one. That's, 
that's the way my head was. And I felt really bad about it. And uh, I was sort of fascinated by girls as well. And that at an early stage, really, but never able to do anything about it because I feel so insure, unsure of myself. So um, secondary school was um, very restrictive again. Christian Brothers, you often, some of you have heard of Christian Brothers. And again, I didn't get into much trouble because I was bright, but there's certain things I wouldn't do in school. I wouldn't have any, any truck with religion and I wouldn't have any truck with history either. Because I, I was reading some of the revolutionary history of Ireland and it wasn't like the history they were teaching in school about foreign kings having battles. I knew that that was totally irrelevant to the social upheavals that we had in the 19th century and that wasn't being mentioned. The, the, the Holocaust, our Holocaust, the famine was never mentioned as, a, as one of the, the, the things that the empire did to us as, as a nation. And I had read about that and I knew it wasn't being mentioned in school. So I knew it was very biased, biased sort of way of teaching. And I just opted out and I, and I got into trouble for that in school because I wasn't, again, I wasn't going along with the flow. And eventually I got into trouble with the religion because I wouldn't partake in, they were sending all the, all the classes off to a monastery to go on a retreat. And it was all about sex, you know. You'd have these twisted priests and, no, and telling you how to, not have sex because they were supposed to not have sex either but we know nowadays they were all having sex anyway but the whole retreat was about that and i knew it was all very sham i knew it was a sham and anyway to cut that long story short i was thrown out of school because i wouldn't go and and the rebel came out to me then i discovered that i i was able to do this exam without school and i applied to the department for all the papers they did my what i don't know what different countries would have the final um exam it's in, in ireland was the leaving search you were about 17 when you did it and i managed to get through that by myself and uh, went on to college and ended up with a, being able to do a phd degree in something that i liked sort of like the but like as a kid with the with the leaf the leaves on the photographic pa the paper i became a biologist and got my first job in england now the interesting thing happened before i went to college i um I was always con conscious of drink, even though I never drank. There was two messages for drink in my house. Sometimes my father got drunk and my mother hated it. She never drank. She said her, her, her father, whom I ne never met, had a problem with drink. So she had, a, she had a reaction against drink. And she used to say there's a devil in every bottle of stout. A bottle of stout was a black drink in Ireland, Guinness. She, she really hated drink. So I was very aware of that. My mammy didn't like drink, but my father did. And I also knew that when people drank, they got sort of more, more, um, more fun. There's a bit of fun and a bit of crack. And I especially remember once going into a small little pub in my own hometown. It was a country town at the time. There was sawdust on the floor and there was old men in there and there were smoking pipes and they were talking about hunting and uh, shooting duck and shooting pheasants and how to trap pheasants. And, and it was, I, I suddenly realized there's more fun here than there is in my house. In my house, my mother was trying to get us to all the say the rosary, it's a Catholic prayer where all the family kneel down together and pray to the, the sky pilot and uh, all, his, all his generals. And I was much happier listening to the story about the you know, country life and animals. And uh, so I was both attracted to drink and afraid of drink. The two messages were battling in my head. But at one stage, I used to go off for the summer because we didn't have a lot of money and I felt I had a terrible independence where I wanted to pay my own way, you know, and not be a burden on the family. So I used to go away on summertime to, to, to places like England, working 
on subcontract work or later on I went to the Jersey, Jersey and the Channel Islands and I used to work in a bakery for the summer for four months. And one time I came back and I paid my fees in the college and I had money left over. And that was the day I decided I was going to take my first drink. And it was almost like when I was a, a practicing alcoholic, I wasn't interested in going out if unless I had enough money in my pocket to get to where I wanted to go. I wanted to get the oblivion I wanted. So I wouldn't be interested in going to one or two drinks. That would be sort of torture. So I wait, I, I sort of did the same for my first drink. And the night I took my first drink, it was like I knew I was on a voyage even before I drank it. And I asked somebody for advice. What should I start on? And they told me to start on Picardy. It was a nice, easy drink to drink. So I took three of those. Then it completely changed me. I still remember the feeling, the magic feeling I got from that first drink. All the unsureness, all the shyness, all the not fitting in, all disappeared instantly. It was like magic dust in my brain cells. And for the first time in my life, I felt free. And uh, I nearly crashed the car that night. I was going too fast. I put my fist through a window by mistake. I was knocking the window. I didn't know my own strength. I broke the window and I got chased. And I slept out that night in the car. That was my first drink. And I couldn't wait to get back to it again. Nothing in my mind said, that drink is trouble. That, there was no sort of equal sign in, in my head. It was just bad luck. And the following weekend, I drank again. And the following weekend, I drank Guinness for the first time. And I drank it too fast or whatever. And I went back and I didn't want my parents to see me. And I went to my bedroom and I vomited in the bedroom. The room started spinning around. And the funny thing was that didn't last long. Before long, I was able to drink and that didn't happen. And I was able to drink more and that didn't happen. And I didn't notice the progression of the alcohol inside in me. I often talk about people, most alcoholics didn't like the, the taste of drink, but they liked the effect. And that's what happened to me. And I, 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 I ended up needing to take more to get the effect I was looking for. And to cut that long story short, I went off to England. I got married one night in a pub. Well, I, a woman wanted to marry, marry me, and I said yes in the pub. And within a short time, we had two children. I got my first job after finishing my PhD degree. Uh, went to England to a place called Lowestoft on the East Coast. Got a job in the Ministry of Agriculture and Fisheries as a biologist. And um, it was there that I got. I, I first had access to money, really, the first wages I had. And... Uh, I also had a wife and two children, and I had a dilemma all the time of um, how will I drink like I want to drink and be a dad and try and be a father. And the two things that were very difficult to keep going. So I used to try and just turn off my phone there, somebody looking for me. I used to um, leave the, leave work and uh, in England that time, the, the pubs used to close during the day. Barbaric, barbaric way of life. But um, on the way home, there was these off licenses where you could bring a, a bottle, an empty bottle, and they'd fill it up with sherry for 50, 50 pence, it was at the time, 10 shillings. So I was able to be a, fa a father, put the kids to bed, drink the sherry, and uh, then I'd go out for a few pints when they're asleep. And, that's, and that progressed over there. And then I started feeling like I wasn't fitting in over there. One morning, especially, I went into the, there was about 100 people working in this place, and I was the only Irish person. And I went into the room where everybody had their tea and they seemed to be all sitting in a big circle. And I walked in and I felt that they, they stopped talking. And I talk about self-centeredness. I thought that because I came in, they stopped talking. And I suddenly panicked and I, I never went in there again. 
I, instead of going to the staff room for a cup of coffee, I used to go across to the pub across the road and I discovered a little English drink called barley wine. And I used to have three of those in a pint glass. It was pretty powerful stuff. And then I was okay to work for the day, knowing that I was going to escape and have my bottle of sherry. So that's the way I was drinking. And uh, then one day I got a sudden, a sudden urge to leave the job. It was a good job, you know, it was um, well paid and all that, but I, I had enough of it. There wasn't enough sea time. I wasn't getting enough time doing what I wanted to do. I was working on the early computers. Some people here might not remember them, but they were the punch cards and paper tapes and it was really boring stuff. And so I decided I was going to get out of that job and I, I had I had done a lot of work underwater. I was a diver and I'd done a, because I was in that job as a biologist, I had to do a, a Royal Navy diving course. So I was a, I was a Royal Navy diver, um, civilian diver. So I decided I got the oil rigs and I knew the second reason I was going out in the oil rigs not, was as well as um, getting away from the job that I hated, it also knew that there was no drink out there and to be a way of getting getting off the drink for a while because I knew that it was at some at some level I knew it was it was affecting my life and that went on for a while a year or two years maybe and one time I, I smuggled a load of drink onto a rig and there was all sorts of trouble over that and I got I got sacked and it's really hard when you get sacked in an oil rig because you can't go anywhere I had to wait on the deck waiting for the boat to come out from Yarmouth to pick me up at 24 hours I was there and everybody looking at me like I was a pariah <laughs> And I was the one that was blamed for it all. And then I went went ashore and I changed the story like we all know how to do. I rewrote I rewrote history and blamed it on other factors, but it was really the fact it was drink that did it. And I bounced back and got 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 work on another rig then after that. But that sort of stuff started happening. My life started getting very unmanageable. And then I got a call in the rig one day from Ireland. There was no phones at the time, no mobile phones, a radio call asking me would I come back to Ireland and take up a, a job teaching in the university in, in Galway City and I, I said I would. There was another geographical really. And when I came back to Ireland, it was just like coming to a party. It was so different from England. There was a lot of madness and especially in Galway in the 70s when I landed back, it was like a non-stop party. And I had a wife and kids and, you know, I wouldn't go home at night time. I'd just, just go off. It was a party. I couldn't understand how you wouldn't go to a party at 12 o'clock at night if someone knowing that your children were at home i had had to go to the party and some nights i wouldn't go home at all i'd sleep sleep in a bush or something and to cut that long story short it got to a point where i saw no way out i saw it i, I knew i couldn't keep the job i knew i couldn't be a dad i knew i couldn't i was i was sort of hopeless and i really wanted to die and i i knew how i was going to kill myself with a lovely white Jaguar, I was going to drive it fast off a pier in Galway City into the water and kill myself. I just had to set the date. And I was like that one day and I met a guy and he said to me, how are you? And I said, I'm not doing too well. And I think that was the first time I, I sort of honestly said how I felt. And he, he said to me, come on home with me. My dad knows a bit about it because he obviously knew I was drinking. And I went home with him and his dad happened to be a sober alcoholic. He never mentioned AA. He was a doctor in the hospital. But he did talk to me and he talked to me about the, um, the disease of alcoholism. And I remember that night in his house and whatever happened that night in that house, I decided that he was an interesting character and I'll go back and talk to him when I can stop. So I got enough, I suppose, um, a little bit of hope, I suppose. Now back to my private ward, the little back room in the house, asked my wife to leave me alone for a couple of days and I 
didn't drink anymore, cold turkey. And I went back to Sean's house and um, he dropped the bombshell on me. Then he t told me he was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And all my bullshit indicators went off in my brain because I, I was the one in the big book that's talked about when they say condemnation prior to investigation will leave a man in perpetual, perpetual ignorance. All I had condemned Alcoholics Anonymous without ever knowing anything about it. I just said it was group therapy. I don't, I'm not a group person. I'm a, I'm a loner. I can figure it out by myself. But anyway, I didn't want to hurt his feelings, so I went to a meeting with him. And one thing happened, and he showed me a few meetings. He drove me around a little bit, and one thing happened that had another impression on me. He crashed the car one day, and he got out of the car, and he went up to the person he ran into, and he said, I'm really sorry, it's my fault. Here's all my particulars. And he sat back in the car and drove on as if nothing happened. And I was really impressed with that. That wasn't the sort of company I was, I was used to hanging around with. I, I saw somebody acting sober. In fact, I hadn't got those words either, but I knew it was different. But to cut that long story short, I didn't stay that long in Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought that people were overstating the problem. They were talking about a God. They were talking about higher powers. They were talking about spiritual paths. They were talking about um, rehabs and hospitals. And I hadn't been in rehabs or hospitals. And I felt I was very different from all of them too. And one day I thought I was going to a meeting and I felt an invisible hand putting me into a pub and an invisible hand mouth asking for drink. And I was back drinking again. And I drank for five days and the end of the five days, it was worse than it ever was. And I stumbled back into Alcoholics Anonymous and I've been going ever since. That's the end of that story, that, that part of my, and then the other story started a day at a time. You know, I, I, I got the message that no matter what happens in your life, if you want what's available in these rooms, you don't take the first drink. The post, there was one guy in Galway and the way he described it was, if you make love to the woman next door, you don't take a drink. If, if your wife makes love to the man next door, you don't take a drink. Or if you fuck the postman, you don't take a drink. And that idea of unconditional sobriety landed in my head. That no matter what happens in this new life, I won't take the first drink. And then I had people coming up to me, like the person that brought me in, offering me Valium and sleeping tablets because they said I not only was an alcoholic, I also had anxiety. And I also had panic attacks. So there's nothing harm, no harm in taking these when you need them. And I resisted them too, because I knew I would use those the same as I used drink. I knew it was about abstinence from, like in the big book where he said to give up the right to chemical peace of mind. That's what drink did, did for me. It gave me chemical peace of mind and it ran out on me and nothing else was going to work either. And I've managed to do that, do that a day at a time for over 43 years now. And um, just getting through life then, you know, told not to make any major decisions in the first hour, the first um, year. You know, so I left the marriage, I left the job, um, don't go to pubs, went to pubs non-stop, play music, um, did all the things that were suggested not to. They used to say things like, if you, if you lie with dogs, you'll get up with fleas, or if you fly with crows, they'll shit on you. But I did all those things and I didn't take the first drink. And I, I had to be very aware around drinking situations that I didn't drink by accident. And I did drink by accident twice in the first year, um, once in Germany and once in America. I used to do a lot of traveling in my early days. Um, and it wasn't a mental drink, so I just spit it out and I didn't consider that as breaking my sobriety. And I went on the journey, the, the, the living journey, you know, and uh, it's gone on still. You know, I, I, um, 
I didn't know, I, I knew I couldn't take the first drink or a mind on to chemical, but I didn't know my life was unmanageable. So I thought if you're sober, now let's try and get a hold of life. So I'd left a job, I started off a new job, bought an old schoolhouse, set up a little business, following my, following my bliss, making it musical instruments for a living and employed people and went to America and met a lovely lady on Little Island in, off Seattle called Orcas Island in the Puget Sound. She was a, she was like me. I was a collapsed Catholic and she was a, she was a Jack Mormon. She had rejected her faith and I had rejected mine and she was very open and understanding and she's good with craft work. So we came back and I had, I had a good handle on life now and we set up the business and I was afraid of money and book work and she was good at that. So we were a good couple, but six years later, she wanted children and I, I had two children and I didn't want any more children. So uh, that, that went, that relationship went primarily over that really. And I remember getting on my motorbike, six years sober, tears in my eyes, driving around the roads of Claire, giving her time to pack her stuff. She was leaving, thinking to myself, fuck, sobriety is difficult. And my sponsor said to me, well, try drinking and see if that makes it any easier. And I knew he was right. I got hard love in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I had to let that wash over me and, you know, and I had to go through my teenage years in sobriety. I'd, I had no love life before I got married. I was so uptight. So I went through my, my, my broken heart stages for years after that. And uh, good times and hard times and all that sort of thing. And uh, I don't know how, how long I could talk, talk about that. I, I kept that business going and it gave me a good life. I traveled a lot of the world playing music and doing business. And uh, I, I retired when I was 60. I built a boat, an old boat. And I like to mention that for people who are new that think about, that think that sobriety, when you stop drinking, that it's going to be boring and glum. But it gave me the ability to, to um, commit myself to building a boat. And I launched it in 2003. And I spent five years more or less living on the boat and traveling around the Atlantic, you know, down to wonderful places in Africa and uh, Channel Island, uh, Canary Islands. And I went across the Atlantic by myself when I was 60 on the boat. I remember the excitement of landing in Tobago and walking up to a, a hotel and sending an email to my two children who were, who, who were in their 40s at that stage, I suppose, to tell them I'd landed safely. Uh, a wonderful time, really. Changed. Spent a lot of time up around Iceland and the Faroe Islands and in that boat and lived on it. And then I went on another big journey with a lady that we were getting on very well together and just the same question popped up. I was on my way to, to, to Brazil in the boat and she wanted um, she wanted to go back, back to Ireland and have, have a child. And uh, to cut that long story short, I decided to turn around and she jumped off in the Canary Islands and I took the boat back to Ireland and we went working on a little child and the little child is nearly 10 years old now. And uh, uh, the mother found a younger man for herself shortly afterwards. And that was a hard time in sobriety. I nearly lost my house and, and everything. Um, but I managed to hold on to it and it cost me money to, to finance her in another house. So my daughter could spend time with her. We, we co-parent little Roisin now. And she's a blessing, you know, it wasn't in my plans. When people say life beyond your wildest dreams, I didn't know that I'm 76 now and I didn't know I'd have a 10 year old child when I was 76. And um, we spent a lot of time together. 
I had her in the sea in the Atlantic last week down. We were in the current holding her hand. She was a bit nervous and we were going over the, the ground at about three knots looking at the crabs and lobsters and things. And she was so excited and it was wonderful, crystal clear water. So we're going again this weekend to do that. And she's cracked, totally cracked about horses. So to keep her company, I ride horses. Now I start, got up on my first horse when I was 75 and I came off twice after that, but I'm still up on the horse and keeping her company. So um, that's a lot of my life now. I still do a bit of music and I'm doing a gig now soon, a big gig, and I don't like it because it's all this COVID stuff. And I didn't get any, I didn't get vaccinations or I didn't do no COVID test, nothing like that. I spent a lot of time by myself. So now I have to go into this place I, and there's all these regulations, but it's a bit like everything else. So I go and see if I can manage it. If I can't, I'll walk off. And I know that well, if I walk off stage, the lights don't dim when I leave a room and the party doesn't stop when I leave the room. There's a time I didn't believe that. So I, I, can, I have to be comfortable and I can say to them if I'm not comfortable, I'll or they might not even let me in if they know I've no certificate. So handle that when it comes. A day at a time, I'll do what I do and do the best I can. And in case of any, anybody thinks that when you're 43 or sober that you're cured, that notion is well dispelled. I was out on the road two nights ago at four o'clock in the morning, walking from my lover's house back to my own bed because we didn't get on. Something happened between us and I was with my eyes wide open. She was fast asleep. And I had this spiritual moment which said to me, what are you doing here with your eyes open in bed? Would you go back to your own bed and have sleep? And I hadn't got my car with me. So I walked for an hour and a half in a thunderstorm with lightning all over my head and heavy rain. And I'm saying to myself, isn't the storm outside a lot better than the storm inside the head? And I got back to my own bed and had a bit of a sleep. So I had a sleepless night and you know, we're still friends and we're, we're, we're okay. And it's, it's my stuff. It's my childhood stuff that gets triggered. And uh, I owe it to myself to try and look at that. And it'd be very easy for me to point fingers at other people. It always has been. But whenever I'm pointing finger at a person, there's three fingers pointing back to me. And I am responsible. To, if I ever got a spiritual awakening in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's the, the belief that you know, I am responsible for my own feelings. I am responsible for my own emotions. The world or nobody in it does it to me anymore. And with that, then I've got a chance of getting through it. And today I feel okay. Today I'm making damson jam. I have, a, I have it down there on the way. Damsons are little wild plums and I love them. And there's one tree in, in the village that I know and I tell nobody, only myself and my daughter know where the tree is. I told her it's fairy fruit. So we, we make fairy fruit jam. And that's, that for me is, is, is more spiritual than going into a, a church. And I need to do those things to feel okay in the world. And I'm not, a, not so much of an outsider. And, you know, I've been able to extend this program into my community. You know, I'm, I'm well liked in, 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 the, in the village where I live. You know, they don't look at me as an outsider. That I don't go to mass or I don't, I don't I'm not sort of mainstream polit politically. I'm way to the left way way to the left but still i'm okay with the people you know go in and drink people tea in people's houses and i'm not I'm not an outcast because i'm sort of honest but I, and i have to be honest to be free they they say you're as sick as your secrets so i tell everybody everything it's much easier easier that way now i think i'm over time yeah so i'm going to stop at that <laughs>